Our topic is, we're looking at the elements of worship, and we've come to number three. I believe it's number three. We're going to complete, I have just one final small point on, uh, well, actually, the, uh, the proper hearing the Word of God, the conscionable hearing of the Word of God, and then we're going to be looking at the um, sacraments a little bit. Oh, no, we have to look at the element of praise, singing praise, and then the sacraments, which will be this afternoon. <clears throat> and I'm going to read Psalm 95. <clears throat> o come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God. Yahweh is the great Elohim. And the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture, the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts. And they do not know my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And of course, that'll be quoted by the author of the book of Hebrews in the book of Hebrews. So we've come here to the conscionable hearing. Biblical worship not only consists in sound preaching, but also conscionable hearing. Christians have an obligation to pay close attention to the word preached. One is not to let his mind wander to and fro, but must focus on what is said. Now, I understand that the thoughts, the cares, the interests of this world are pressing upon our minds. And they can drive out a proper focus in meditation on a careful hearing. Consequently, there must be a dedicated commitment to keeping to keep from thinking about recent activities or plans for the immediate future. Such things must be deliberately set aside so we can focus on the word preached. That's how we grow. It's one of the means of grace. In fact, the word is the most important means of grace. It's the primary means of grace. Christians must also seek to understand the message. And you can look up later Psalm 119, 27 and 34, Proverbs 1, 2 to 7, and Proverbs 2, 1 to 6, etc. Now, like the Bereans, we are to compare scripture with scripture to make sure that what is being taught is biblical. Scriptural, there's nothing wrong with that. People make mistakes. Elders make mistakes. Preachers make mistakes. And that's from Acts 
where the Burians are more noble, for they looked at everything Paul taught and they made sure it comported with the Old Testament scriptures, and it did. And then they all believed in Christ, of course. They were to meditate on the truths discussed, Psalm 119, 15 to 16 to 23, uh, 119, uh, okay. And then they are to apply them to their own lives. Psalm 119, 11 to 36, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, and 21 to 25, etc. In other words, <clears throat> you're not only responsible to listen carefully to the sermon and, uh, and listen to and understand the content, but then you're to apply it to yourselves and go, hmm, I need to do this. I need to do that. I need th The scripture speaks to me. How does it apply to my life? And then you need to do that. The sermon is not simply an interesting theological lecture. It is a special means of grace, the primary means of grace. If we do not listen, pay close attention, and then apply the truths to ourselves, we will not benefit from it, it at all. So listen carefully. Understand it. Meditate on other applicatory sections of Scripture and then apply it to your own hearts and lives. James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his face in the mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and then immediately forgets what kind of man he was. That's James 1, 22 to 25. A biblical sermon should prompt us, due to love, gratitude, and reverence toward Christ and his word, to a hearty, habitual obedience to it. Okay, remember uh, last week we said there's, there's an aspect of worship that's dialogical. Yes, you're praising God. Yes, you're praying to God. You're adoring God. You're, you're, you're devoted to him. But he's also speaking to you in his word. The word read, the word preached. And, of course, we meditate on the word sung, which we'll consider in a moment. There are people who attend solid churches that never seem to grow or grow very little. And the reason in good churches is not the preaching, but in their hearing. People who view the church as a social club or an entertainment center are cheating themselves of progressive spiritual growth. I remember I was a church planter in uh, Michigan. This is 25 years ago, and um, over 25 years ago, and 27 years ago. And uh, I was witnessing to a gentleman who was a professing Christian, and he admitted to me that the church he went to, the preaching was horrible and the doctrine was horrible. But he says, I don't go to church for the preaching of the doctrine. I like the people there, and that's where my business connections are. Well, that's a very unbiblical attitude. The church is not a social club. Now, yeah, we have fellowship, communion. This is the Lord's Supper, which we'll discuss this afternoon, Lord willing, to a degree. But the word is the primary means of grace. That's the most important thing. Their lack of knowledge, understanding, conviction, and growth is their own fault. Complacent or sleeping hearers 
should note the author of Hebrews' dire warning. And this is from 2.1-2. Therefore we must give the most earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience reaped a just reward, how then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Okay, so that's the conscionable hearing. It's very obvious. It's very practical stuff. Don't daydream. Don't sleep. Don't think about things that you shouldn't be thinking about on the Sabbath anyway. Focus on the word. And I, yeah, I know some pre preachers are pretty boring. Some preachers are not too good. But you can try to get out of it what you can and then we come to the next element of worship, which is the singing of psalms. The singing of inspired psalms is regarded by Scripture and the Westminster Standards as a separate element of worship. The singing of inspired songs was an ordinary part of public worship in the Old Testament, and due to its continuation in the New Covenant era, it must be distinguished from ceremonial Worship. Psalm 69, 30 and 31, Matthew 26, 30, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16, James 5, 13. It's practiced at the Lord's Supper. It's practiced in the Book of Acts. It's practiced or commended in the epistles. So it's not something that's ceremonial that's been done away with. Yes, it was done in the temple, but it was also done in the synagogue and in family worship. It's not simply a ceremonial thing that's been abrogated. The fact that singing praise is a separate element of worship teaches us that it is based on a separate biblical warrant with different rules. Okay, each of these elements of worship is different with different rules. Now, there's some overlapping aspects, certainly. Uh, Psalms contain a lot of prayer and doctrine, but they're still to be sung. It must be treated differently than the preaching of the word or prayer, both of which involve making up the verbal content to fit specific needs, exposition, or petition. And this point needs to be emphasized because churchmen in Presbyterian Reformed circles who have attempted to justify their use of uninspired hymns in public worship have deliberately mixed up the separate elements. And the, the person most famous for this, of course, was Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson did this... Uh, and said that uh, singing is just another way of praying, and praying is just the, another way of singing. Well, that's unconfessional. That's unconfessional. It's unbiblical. They are treated differently in Scripture, and they are treated differently in all the reform symbols, in especially the Westminster Standards. Also, John Frame's book, where he says he wants to just make it just one big block of uh, worship in general, and then he wants to talk about not different elements, but different applications which is also unconfessional. And what these men are doing is they're just using very clever techniques, very clever methods of argumentation to try to get away from exclusive psalmody and justify uninspired hymns, which are a recent innovation, and they weren't practiced in the apostolic church at all. This is done to attempt to apply rules for one element to another. It is argued that if we can make up our own words for prayer, then why not also for singing praise? But this can 
Clever confusing of elements breaks down as soon as other elements are treated the same. For example, are women allowed to pray and sing praise in church? And the answer is absolutely. They pray in corporate prayer and they sing praise. They all do. But Paul explicitly forbids women to preach or teach in public worship. 1 Corinthians 14, 34-36. They're not even allowed to ask questions. They have to ask their husbands at home. Now, why is that? Well, Paul honors covenant headship. He honors Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, and, of course, the teaching of Jesus. We must, following the confession of faith, allow Scripture to define each separate element of worship and not attempt to force our own presuppositions upon the teaching of Scripture. So, the Westminster Confessions, the singing of psalms with grace in the heart, that's 21.5, excludes uninspired hymnody. That is man-made, uninspired materials in the singing praise element of worship. For the simple reason that there is not one command or example of, for uninspired songs in worship in the entire Bible. Did you know that? Look, try to find one. Try to find a command for us to make up our own worship songs and try to find an example of an uninspired worship songs and you won't find them. Now here's just a footnote. There have been a number of conservative Presbyterian scholars who have argued that since the word Psalms is not capitalized in the Confession of Faith, the authors of the Confession, that's 21.5, were not advocating exclusive psalmody, but Psalms and uninspired hymns. And this idea is easily disproved by the following observations. And the reason I'm pointing this out is if you're not singing inspired Psalms only, then you're not confessional. You've departed from the Confession of Faith. And, of course, you've departed from the uh, Director of Public Worship. And, of course, they got rid of that in 1788. The American Presbyterians did. Look at the following observations. Number one, the Directory for Public Worship of God says, quote, It is the duty of Christians to praise God publicly by singing psalms together in the congregation and also privately in the family. In the end of quote, in the immediate context, the directory mentions the use of a psalm book and the lining out of the psalms for those who cannot read. So the word psalms refers explicitly to the canonical psalms of Scripture. And by the way, the Reformed churches made sure that they had metrical books, uh, metrical versions of the psalms for singing in their churches, and they put that together very early. The first book published in the United States well, it wasn't the United States yet, it was the early 1600s, was the Bay Psalm Book, which was put out by the Puritans. That's the first book published in America. Number two, the minutes of the Westminster Assembly reveals clearly that the only discussion about singing praise in public worship was regarding which translation of the 150 canonical psalms was to be chosen. Uninspired hymns were never discussed or even considered. And, of course, they chose the 1650 Psalter. Well, what, be, what became the 1650 Psalter? Because it was more literal. They wanted a literal, metrical version of the Psalms for singing. 
because they took the word of God seriously. Number three, Presbyterian communions did not officially permit the use of uninspired hymns, and I'm talking about the big Presbyterian denomination, the, the biggest one, for over 250 years of their history until 1788. In that year, the PCUSA set aside the original directory for a new one, which allowed uninspired hymns. They changed the 1645 directory singing of psalms to singing psalms and hymns. So they understood that the singing of psalms did not include uninspired hymns. So they added the word hymns so they could sing uninspired hymns. This was not become, done because of the careful exegesis of Scripture, which showed that the original First and uh, Second Reformation Presbyterian reformers, scholars, and ministers got it all wrong, but to satisfy the declension of Presbyterian families and congregations who were syncretizing with the non-reformed churches around them. The songs of Isaac Watts were very popular. First he put out a paraphrase of the psalm book, which is horrible, because he was anti-psalmody. He thought that the psalm book was a... Uh, uh, he thought the imprecatory psalms and so forth were only for the Old Testament and were unfit for Christians. And then he put out a hymn book, and the hymn book was very popular. And it was introduced in many churches, and then Presbyterians, because they forgot about the regular principle, all these things go back to bad teaching. And it's all the fault of ministers and elders for not teaching the regular principle of worship, not emphasizing purity of worship. If it's not emphasized, if it's not taught, people are just going to do what everybody else is doing. They're going to follow the culture around them. And the culture around them was one of declension. The first official Presbyterian hymn book did not come into existence until 1831. The first psalm books go back to the 1500s among Reformed churches, and Calvin was obsessed with getting a French version of the psalms out and worked very hard, him and his men. It was, it was a focus of the Dutch Reformed and the German Reformed and the original Presbyterians to get Psalters in the original language, because that's what they believed in. <clears throat> so, if you're not singing exclusive psalmody, if you're not practicing exclusive psalmody, you're unconfessional, and uh, you're part of the declension and covenant breaking. The historical examples of worship songs in scripture were either songs found in what will become the Psalter, or their inspired counterparts. First Chronicles six thirty one to forty eight, sixteen seven to thirty six, second Chronicles twenty nine, twenty five to thirty, and I stopped there, but there's a lot more examples. Inspired praise songs were not only sung by the Levitical choirs, but also the whole assembly of God's people. Um, Exodus fifteen one, second Samuel one seventeen to eighteen, second Chronicles sixteen thirty six, second Chron uh, first Chronicles, second Chronicles twenty three thirteen, twenty nine twenty seven to thirty, Psalm thirty, verse four, hundred and thirty seven one to sixteen. And I'm aware that the Psalter in its final form uh, did not exist until long after David was dead. Uh, however, they, had, they used what they had that was inspired. Yeah, the Psalter wasn't completed until quite a while after David died. But when it was completed and they stopped adding to it, that became the final hymn book for the Church of God. <clears throat> the use of Psalms for singing praise was also the practice of Jesus and the Apostles. Matthew 26.30, what they sang at the Lord's Supper, 
Uh, all scholars are in agreement that they sang from the, the Hillel, uh, the uh, Psalm 118, which spoke about the resurrection, by the way, in Christ's victory. Uh, Psalm 519, Colossians 316, which talk about singing, the, are you, you talk about singing praise and using the book of Psalms, and we'll look at that in a moment. And then, of course, James 513. It is significant that every person in Scripture who wrote songs for public worship had the gift of prophetic inspiration. Miriam, Exodus 15, 20 to 21. Deborah, Judges 5. Isaiah 5, 1 and 21 in one and following. Mary, Luke 146 and following. David, who wrote at least 73 of the Psalms, did so by a special gift of the Spirit, 2 Samuel 23, 12 and Acts 1, 16. And he is repeatedly called a prophet in the New Testament in reference to his worship songs. Uh, Matthew twenty two forty three to 44 Mark 12, 36, Acts 1, 16 to 17, Acts 2, 29 to 31, Acts 4, 24 to 45. Asaph, who was a worship leader in the temple, he was a Levite, he wrote 12 Psalms. He wrote 50 and then 73 to 83. He's called a seer which is synonymous with the prophet. Second Chronicles 29.30, the word seer is synonymous with prophet explicitly there. Other examples of songwriters with the gift of inspiration are Moses, Psalm 90, Solomon, Psalm 72 and 127, and Jeduthun, another Levite, Second Chronicles 35.15. So all the examples we find of people singing praise in the Bible are inspired examples. All the examples of people writing songs for public worship of the church are prophets or seers. That's what the Bible says. You may not like it, but that's what the Bible says, and we have to follow what the Bible says. It is also noteworthy that God has placed a lengthy, detailed, balanced, multifaceted worship songbook right in the middle of the canon of Scripture. Don't you think that's significant? We have a whole book of praises for God right in the middle of the Bible, yet people don't want to use them. That's kind of weird, don't you think? We have the law of God and the Ten Commandments. Uh, are we supposed to not ignore the law of God, too, and make up our own law? No, I don't think so. To ignore it, replace it, or supplement it altogether with non-authorized, uninspired songs is unnecessary, and it's inexcusable. Why would you do that? It doesn't make sense. God, for his own good reasons, deemed it necessary to have only inspired songs in public worship. Why did he regard it as necessary? To keep the element of singing praise strictly under the Spirit's control? We cannot know for sure. We can only speculate. Now, given the strong influence of music on the heart, given the great influence of melodies on the human heart and the repetitory nature of the element of praise, Perhaps he was concerned to protect his church from the corrupting influence of heretical and humanistic man-centered hymns. Uh, I didn't go into it. I, I, I tried to keep this extremely brief because it's just a short discussion of the elements of worship. But if you study the ancient church, the first hymn writers were all heretics. The first people who wrote uninspired hymns were all heretics. Hymns weren't used in the apostolic church until the 4th century, and the hymn writing Orthodox people started to write hymns to try to battle against the hymns of the heretics. 
because it's very easy to teach something people people something bad with melodies because it's very people like to sing it over and over and it it it, it hits the human heart. Satan was very effective uh, uh, in using music in the 50s and 60s, especially when continuing to corrupt young people with hedonism, Eastern mysticism, and uh, sexual immorality, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then the symbol used at rock concerts now, which has been for quite a long time, probably for 25 years, is they do the, uh, the hand symbol, I guess it's this, which represents Satan. When you see them doing that in the crowd and they're sticking their fingers up, that's a, a sign of, of obeisance to Satan. Yeah, I know it's crazy. But Satan knows that music is a real a good way to get to people's hearts. So God wanted strict control over the content of worship song. God was concerned to protect his church from the corrupting influence of heretical and humanistic man-centered hymns. Even the best hymnals have errors and corruptions. Now, the hymnal that was uh, agreed upon by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church quite a while ago is called the Trinity Hymnal. It's very thick. It's got a, a lot of hymns. And I, before I was a psalm singer, that's what I used. Um, it's generally regarded as the best of the modern hymnals by Reformed churches. Yet did you know that it has hymns in it by Unitarians, that is, people who deny the Trinity? It has hymns by people who deny the divinity of Christ. It has hymns by Roman Catholics who deny the doctrine of salvation. It has hymns by radical feminists. And many, many hymns by Armenian heretics who deny sovereign grace. So this idea that, yeah, we can have hymns, let's just make sure they're biblical. Well, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is one of the best, most conservative churches in the United States, didn't keep them biblical. And remember, the hymnal was supervised by elders and ministers. And it's very corrupt. And it doesn't even contain a whole copy of a, a literal translation of the Psalms. It's corrupt. It's terrible. <clears throat> the theological trajectory of hymns in the last few centuries has been from mediocre to bad and then worse. Songs are increasingly man-centered and humanistic as the leaven of Arminianism and hedonism had its cultural effect on many churches. And I know. I was a charismatic. I was a Baptist. I was a dispensationalist. I attended Assemblies of God and charismatic churches. I played in a church orchestra. I, I, I was a professional drummer before I became a Christian. I had to get out of it because of the drugs and the ladies and so forth. But I know all about church music. Is it fun? Absolutely. Does it move the heart? Absolutely. Is it authorized by God? No. God strictly regulates this, the element of singing of praise in church. And I think we see the wisdom of that when we see the trajectory of uninspired hymn, hymnody and how it's degenerated into simplistic, humanistic garbage. Yeah, there's some good songs out there, but a lot of it's garbage. The deep and balanced theology, the respect for God's character, and moral law, the amazing experiential piety, and the imprecatory aspect of the Psalter is almost completely missing 
from humanly composed hymnals. Does not the New Covenant people of God need such a perfect inspired songbook as the Old Testament saints did? That's what they had. They had uninspired songs. I mean, they had, excuse me, they had perfect inspired songs written by God. Can't we have the same? And we do, because uninspired hymns were never authorized by God. In addition, it is a fact of church history that uninspired hymns have driven out the Psalms from the vast majority of churches. I've attended a number of OPC churches, Orthodox Presbyterian churches. I've attended a number of PCA churches. Not one of them uh, were using the Psalms. Not one of them. Now, there's a couple of bad paraphrases in the Trinity hymnal, and I know that some PCA churches today and a few OPC churches have that little red psalter that they put out, and they might sing one psalm during the worship. They might let God authorize song, one of them, in per week. But that's not, you know, they should all be psalms. That it is designed to be sung by God's people in public worship is obvious and undeniable. In the book of Psalms, there are another number of notations to the musical director or worship leader, as well as many passages which indicate they were intended by God to be used in the public worship of the church for all time. The Psalms are repeatedly referred to as psalms, melodious songs, songs, and hymns. And the fact that the Psalms contain prophecies, excellent statements of theology, and numerous prayers does not mean or imply that the Psalms are not sung in public worship. It means that our concept, our definition of what constitutes a good worship song should be in line with Scripture. This is what amazes me about these arguments against the use of the Psalter. People take modern, the modern hymn and the presuppositions of modern uninspired hymnody and then they look back at the Psalter and says, well, there's prayers in it. It can't be a songbook. Yeah, you can sing prayers. It's got all these prophecies and it's got all this great theology. Yeah, you can sing great theology. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what God wants us to do. That's why he made the Psalter the way it is. The fact that the inspired name of the book in the original Hebrew is praises or the book of praises should settle a matter once and for all. Because one of the arguments that Reformed people used today that are against exclusive psalmody as well. It's not even a book of song. It's not even a book for praise. Because it's got all this theology and prayers in it. It's called the book of praises. In the Hebrew. The Greek calls it the book of Psalms. That's why we call it the Psalter. But in the Hebrew, it's the book of praises. Now, modern conservative Presbyterians have two basic arguments to justify their departure from the Westminster Standards and the Covenanted Reformation. The first is that Ephesians 5.19 speaks of using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the parallel to that, by the way, is Colossians 3.16. The basic idea is that hymns and spiritual songs refer to man-made uninspired materials. Now, the problem with this view is that it is a case of using one's modern English understanding of these words to interpret the original Greek and Hebrew words used to describe praise in public worship. Okay, we're not supposed to interpret Scripture by our modern English usage. We're to interpret Scripture by how the words are used by the original audience. That's common sense, and it's good hermeneutics. It's good biblical interpretation. A crucial principle of biblical interpretation is that we are to determine to the best of our ability what these words meant 
to the original recipients of these epistles. The term hymns, hymnois, spiritual songs, hodes uh, pneumaticos, or song, udi, when speaking of the worship of Yahweh, always refer to inspired materials in the Old Testament Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which was used by the first century church. It's called the Septuagint, which means the 70. There were 70, according to tradition, there were 70 men that translated it, 70 Hebrew, Hebrew scholars, Jews. And I, I believe they did it in Alexandria, Egypt, that translated the Hebrew into the Greek. So it got the name of the 70. Now the word psalm, psalmos, or plural, psalmoi, occurs 87 times in the Septuagint, 78 are in the Psalms, 67 in the titles. It is also the Greek word that forms the title to the whole book. The word hymn, hymnos, or that's singular, is found 17 times, 13 in the Psalm titles, uh, 13 times in the Psalm, 6 in the titles. In the historical books, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and Nehemiah, although Nehemiah is probably considered part of the writings, there are 16 examples when the inspired author uses the word hymns, hymnoi, or songs, udai, to describe the inspired psalms. So when you see in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, to the Greek-speaking to the Greek -speaking Jew, that re referred to the Psalter, not Isaac Watts. So these words are used to describe the inspired psalms. Singing inspired songs, hymns, or psalms is called hymning. Humneo, humnedeo, and humnesis. The word song occurs 80 times in the Septuagint, 45 times in the Psalms, 36 in the titles. In 12 psalms, the word psalm is used in conjunction with song as a synonym. And in two others, it is set as a synonym of hymn. In Psalm 76, in the original language, we find the title Psalm, Hymn, and Song, which is almost identical to Paul's usage in Ephesians and Colossians. At the end of a large grouping of David's inspired psalms, uh, which comes at 7220, we read the hymns of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. David, so David calls his psalms hymns. David, writing under inspiration, defines inspired psalms penned for public worship as hymns and songs. Now, these many examples raise a good question. Would a Greek-speaking Christian, Jewish Christian, who is familiar with the Septuagint, which is what they used, interpret spiritual songs and hymns in a manner consistent with King David and the Old Testament historical books, or would he adopt an arbitrary and pagan understanding of these words? Now, I think the answer to that question is obvious. Now, those who oppose the confessional position, which is exclusive psalmody, argue that these words in the Greek Septuagint are also used of uninspired material. In this point, we do not deny. But... Are the uninspired examples found in the context of the worship of God? That's the question. Because in, I debated a guy at Greenville Seminary back in 2001, and this was his major point in interpreting Ephesians and Colossians. 
but these examples don't refer to worship at all. Not one. The answer is absolutely not, never. They are used of evil drunkards, Psalm 69, 12, and in the uh, LXX, that's uh, the Septuagint, that's 68, 12. The songs of the wicked, Job 20, 21, 12, and the songs of apostates mocking uh, Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, 14. So it is disingenuous to appeal to such examples to define the meaning of the con- in the context of public worship. Especially when Scripture tells us plainly that the worship songwriters were prophets or seers. In addition, in the parallel passage to Ephesians and Colossians 3.16, these worship terms are introduced by the statement, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which a number of scholars, probably most scholars, regard as equivalent to let the word of God dwell in you richly. So the context indicates that these are inspired songs, taken from the word of God. Further, the modifier of songs is the word is the word spiritual, which tell that the songs are to be produced by the Holy Spirit. And this teaching is consistent with the Old Testament requirement of divine inspiration. Now we're going to take a break, and I just have a little bit more, and we'll get to the, the, the sacraments. Uh, and of course, if you want a lot more detail, I have a whole book on this, and you can order the, uh, well, the book's out of print. It's on my website, reformedonline.com. And I have, I have a lot, and then I, I actually, the debate I had with a professor of Old Testament from uh, Greenville Seminary, which is, which is one of the best seminaries in the country, sad to say that they're anti-Somity, but um, I have a refutation of him on my website, too. I took all of his arguments and showed that they don't hold any water at all if you actually look at them carefully. You want to be detailed, you want to be careful, you want to follow what the scripture says. And that's why we're covering these elements of worship. We're going to take a little break, get a snack. And then we're going to come back. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your Psalter. It is perfect. It is sufficient. It is exactly what we need. It is exactly what the church needs in this time of worship declension and humanistic songs. So bring reformation to your church, Lord, especially in this time when uh, the judgment's about to fall on the Western nations for their their wickedness and their acceptance of sodomite rights and all these crazy things. So, bring the Psalter back, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.